Let's turn to Exodus chapter 3. Sorry, some random man you probably don't know is tearing up up here. I'm sorry. We're preaching. um, The title today is God Worthy of Worship. I just wanted to draw our attention to God. Um, My hope is that that this is a a very simple sermon. Uh, We're going to be going through some concepts and thoughts attributes of God that you likely already know, and so I am not here to teach you anything you don't know, uh, but I wanted to bring a great reminder, uh, and that, that reminder is great, because when we think of what it is to know God and to believe in God, it's very different than actually knowing and believing. There's a very great danger that exists for all of us, that there can be this great divide, this big gap between what we know and and what that actually means for us. I mean, those songs that we sing, I know those songs because it's, they're known songs. They've passed through like a host of saints that have sung it and said, this, we can be in agreement over these principles. How great is our God? Is there, is there anything else like that that we need? You know, like there, there's no one that's going to say, let me think about that concept. We would all immediately say we believe in those words. And as we sing it, you might have some feeling inside of your heart that says, I believe this. But my question to you this morning is, do you really? Like, do you really believe that? Because I think that's the problem. I think the problem is that we think we believe it. But it's not the same as knowing who God is. And so where there's that great divide, that's where the compromises come in. Those are the places where we think we're okay. And we can sing those words and have some level of conviction walking out of a church service or out of a DG or whatever it is that you do. It could be a meetup together. And that was great, very great, very encouraging. But, but does that mean that you know God? Does that mean you've been walking with him? Does that mean you've been abiding in him? It doesn't. I think the proof of your walking with God, the proof of intimacy of relationship with God is going to be found after those times. In the quietness of your room, in your car, in your waking and sleeping. Now that's when it's going to be tested. Do you know God? Not about God. And even those words that I've just said, you've probably heard it, that Christianity is not just a, a, just a, what is it, a religion, it's a relationship. How many times have you heard that? Actually, in fact, the last time I came and spoke for you guys, that's what I preached on. Just because we know it doesn't mean we've internalized it. It doesn't mean we believe it. So today I wanted to talk about God. I wanted, you to, I wanted to introduce you to this God. Because our hearts are going to expose us. Our hearts are going to expose whether we really know God or not. Where your fears are, your anxieties your anger, your frustrations, where you're depressed, where you're sad, where you feel hopeless, where you feel defeated, it will expose you if you really believe in what you proclaim. I think that's the only thing we have. 
That's the only thing that actually changes us, is when we walk, when we actually walk, and we actually believe the God that we, we profess. I have a quote for us from A.W. Tozer. He says, to this I reply, because we are the handiwork of God, it follows that all our problems and their solutions are theological. Some knowledge of what kind of God it is that operates the universe is indispensable to a sound philosophy of life and a sane outlook on the world scene. And so let's look at Exodus chapter 3, verse 13. And this is only going to be a launching pad for the three attributes that we're going to be coming across today. Exodus chapter 3, verse 13 says, Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel, and I will say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Our first point is that God is independent. Let's, let's really look at this. God is independent. Uh, what kind of application do we have in this kind of fact of God? That God is independent of all other things. When God here says, I am who I am, tell them that I am has sent me to you. That this is so important, so dear to who he is, that he actually says, this is my name, that I simply am. He exists. There's nothing that comes after he doesn't say, I am, and then fill in the blank. All of us needs to have something there at the end. We need to have something that fills in the blank at the end. But God alone can sit there and say, I am, and no other word is needed. He is. End of statement. Literally, one God, the only one who can claim this. God is independent. He is independent of all other things. Everything else, everyone else, every other being is dependent on the only true independent God. That's why this statement seems incomplete because we don't understand it. There is no way that we can comprehend it. He's in no need of anyone or anything and there's great power in this. It, there's a difference between you theologically comprehending this passage. If this is reality to you, that he is independent, it will change your life. It will change your heart. It will change your feelings. It will change your outlook. It will change everything about who you are. Acts chapter 17 verse 24 says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands. And listen to this, this comment that he makes here. As though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things, only God is independent. This passage is highlighting this fact. What that means is then that everything and everyone else is dependent upon him. I told you, I'm not going to preach anything new. You are dependent on him. I am dependent on him. At any point, if we stay away from this principle, I'm not saying that we don't believe it. I'm not saying that we're not able to say it with our lips. I'm saying if that is not true to us, if there's a huge gap between us that I am dependent upon him, what does that mean? That I need him. That I am in an urgency today. That I am in desperation. That without God, that I am no more. That I am done for. I have no hope. There's no reason for life. See, if we believe that, that is a powerful, powerful belief. See, we see glimpses of independence in us. We talk about financial independence. We talk about relational independence. We like to think that what we do 
that what we set our minds on, we can actually accomplish. But can we really accomplish anything? Is there anything we can accomplish? Is there anything you can accomplish? We wake up in the morning and we have our itineraries and our lists and our schedules and our list of things to do. And we say, this is what I'm going to accomplish. Can we? Any plan that we make. The answer to that is enormously no. To the smallest of detail, can you do any? Can you breathe? No. Who keeps our heart beating? Not me. God is the one who keeps us put together. We can't follow through on any plan, any promise you make, any promise someone makes to you. How can we, how can we ever live trusting anything? Because God is the independent one. In Proverbs 69, it says, The mind of plan, man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It is the Lord who directs the steps. James 4.13 says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. We're looking at a person who's going around just simply saying, today or tomorrow, I'm going to do these things. I've created these plans. That all, that's all he's saying. But listen to what the Word of God says. It says that this is not simply erroneous. This is not simply something that is just a little bit off track that we have to fix. He looks at this person and he says, this kind of living is what? evil. Thinking that you are independent, thinking that you are able to accomplish anything apart from the independent one. The one who is able to accomplish all things, all else, dependent upon him, to think that that is not the case and that I can live independently is evil. And the answer to that is not to step back and say, I have to then live independence, it's actually to stare at the one who is independent. And to take long looks at him, to claim that we're independent and to, to do anything without God does not correspond to any kind of reality that you or I believe. And so we would believe it, but then why do we live the way we do? What that means is that we have a high and lofty theology and our lives betray us. We live in compromise because of that. Because we think that because my mind says it, because I'm able to say it, to somebody because we're able to repeat it to each other because we're able to sing a song that we believe those things and that's simply not true because our lives expose us. The way we've been living exposes us. Faith is not here. Faith happens when, when you surrender yourself to what you say you believe. That's faith. You let go. You give up. We're, in the, we're, in the, we're dependent on God for everything, not just something, everything. 
every single little measly thing in our lives, all of us, all creation, actively, minutely, dependent on God for every moment, by moment, always, second by second, being upheld by God, the only independent one. In the Bible, it says in John 1.1, God sustains all things. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1.16 sounds very similar. For by Him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Do you see what He's doing? He's pounding it in point by point by point by point. All things at all times in you, outside of you, from the beginning to the end, dependent upon God who is holding all things together. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, For even if these there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through him. A.W. Tozer, again, he says this. Man is a created being, a derived and contingent self of who of himself possesses nothing but is dependent each moment for his existence upon the one who created him after his own likeness. The fact of God is necessary to the fact of man. This is the very reason why we sin. Because we proclaim deity and independence over our own lives. And because we say that we believe theologically in our minds that God is God alone, we're able to sing those songs that day to day we're able to live for our own glory and for our own selves. And we prance around our lives saying like, but we're not perfect. And we say, well, I'll just try harder and try my best. But Jesus Christ did not come into the world simply to rescue us and release us from the consequences of our sin. He came to release us from the power of it. So that we might no longer live in wickedness and unrighteousness and in darkness any longer. Is there compromise in your heart this morning? Is there a place of darkness where you are yet unsurrendered before the Lord? Then the believer would say, yes, I am not perfect, but I come and surrender. We need to reclaim a high view of God because this is who God is, that he is the independent one. And this is the only way we will be driven to turn to God if we believe that we are dependent upon him for everything. That this is intimately the God we walk with. That he is not just the God in theory. He is not just the God in name. That we know him because we walk with him. He is not just told to you by some random man on a pulpit but that you are in agreement with me this morning because we've been walking with him. We see him. Second, it's not just that God is independent, but God is infinite. Again, we're going to go through three different attributes. This is the second of the three. God is infinite. When God says in Exodus 3.13, I am who I am, that could have very easily have been used in the past and future tenses. Maybe you even knew that. I was who I was. I will be who I will be. It has no time associated with this. I am who I am. Wayne Grudem says, before God created the universe, there was no time. At least not in the sense 
of a succession of moments one after another. Therefore, when God created the universe, he also created time. When God began to create the universe, time began, and there began to be a succession of moments and events one after another. But before there was a universe and before there was time, God always existed without beginning and without being influenced by time. And time, therefore, does not have existence in itself, but like the rest of creation, depends on God's eternal beings and power to keep it existing. A good way to think about God's infinitude, that he is a God of infinity, is that he is limitless or measureless. That's probably the better way to think of his infinity. Because we have a propensity in us, because we are finite creatures, to capture him and to cage him according to the limits of our understanding. And so we'll say things bound by our own time and space, constrained by our own eyes and experiences that, that it, the infinity of God means just very, 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 very much time. But that is not God's infinity. So we exaggerate things and we say infinite, infi- this, this has infinite possibilities. These are exaggerated terms to express a whole lot. But it is staggeringly impossible to comprehend God's infinitude because we are finite creatures. Even though one day we will live, we say we will live forever, we still had a beginning. And so there is no way to fully comprehend this. Measureless, limitless. So again, you can't think infinity into the future like counting years, like a billion years into the future. A billion, a hundred billion years into the future. That won't even begin to scratch the surface what God's infinitude even means. It's on a different plane, different existence. We have ways of measuring huge distances and numbers and forces, but not the infinity of God. You can measure the diameter of huge planets and stars and galaxies, and it still wouldn't be even on the same plane of existence as what we're talking about. All these massive things are quantifiable, and so in God's infinitude, we're saying that you can't measure it. He's on a completely different plane. He simply is. And so he says, I am who I am. He always has been. He always will be. He is Yahweh. The scriptures speak to this. Psalm 91 says, Lord, you have been dwelling. You have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were born. Or you gave birth to the earth and the world. Even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by or as a watch in the night. From everlasting to everlasting. It's not talking of about a great amount of time. He simply just existed. He was 2 Peter 3.8, therefore says with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. And in Revelations 1.8, listen to this. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So why does this matter to us? Because when you just simply think about this as a concept, it tickles your intellect. That's fascinating. But when you walk with the God who is infinite, that blows your mind. That causes worship. That drops every Christian to their knees and saying, why? Why do you think of me? Instead of trying to gather up some stale, stale heart that's been created over the years, and we come to church and say, God, I feel nothing. 
and I'm jaded, and I'm apathetic, and all these bad things have happened, and I can't trust anything, and I can't trust myself. That just shows me a person who has not been walking with God. So when you walk with the massive God like that, all things, what does it mean when we see things, seeing things like all things turn to shadow in the presence of our God and King? He, he, massive doesn't even begin to scratch what we're talking about. He is. There is security in this. Because God exists outside of our understanding of time, we understand what it means that God holds time in his hands. Time has no effect on God. Time has no effect on his memory. His emotions don't wane. They don't contract. His purposes aren't affected by time. His promises aren't affected by time. He knows everything instantaneously, if that makes sense. We might forget what we ate for lunch yesterday, but God vividly sees everything from the beginning of creation to the dawn of the end. He sees it as if it were this moment because he resides outside. He operates off of his infinitude. This matters as to our sin. When the father pours out his wrath on his son 2,000 years ago, it is as if he saw my sin. He knew why he was pouring wrath upon his son because he saw the sin that I sinned 10 years ago as well as the one 10 years from now. When he looks a billion years into eternity in heaven with him, he looks at us today at this moment in 2023. And so he's able to take us through those difficulties because he can see the joy that is before us. He can see that this is so much more worth than an infinity of joy with God. That at that moment, he can see that in our present state as we're still yet being sanctified and not in a glorified state. See, he's able to operate like that. He, he is always going to operate in perfect wisdom because of his infinitude. And this is what it means when we say that he transcends time and space and matter. He will only and can only do what is best for you because he sees it all. So this matters in our worship of God. Our third one is that God is immutable. God is immutable. He does not change. Again, in our text, Exodus 3.13, I am who I am. This statement shows that he doesn't change. He simply is. Take a look at the human, on the other hand. Psalm 144.4, man is like a mere breath. His, de- his days are like a passing shadow. James 4.14, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Yet we puff out our chests and we walk around our lives saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I will consider whether or not to live for God's kingdom or to create my own today. I will judge him, I will judge her. I will dictate what I'm going to do with my time. That even before God in my worship, I will portion out what he's allowed to actually control and be king over. That I gave my time here, but this little time here, I get to use however I would like to use. I get to spend this money because I gave that money. I get to use this time because I gave that time. So do you believe? Do you believe that God is who he says he is? Do you believe that he is this this God of infinity? 
This God who is immutable, this God who is independent, do you believe that he is God of gods, Lord of lords, King of kings, that he is everything, that he is powerful and majestic and mighty and sovereign to do whatever he pleases? Do you believe that? Well, your life will give you away. My life, my heart will expose me. We could flap our lips all day long, but the bigger that gap gets, the more we live a two-faced existence. God is immutable. He does not change is what that means. God stays the same. No amount of time will change him. No experience changes him. Nothing external to him. The independent, this infinite one, nothing will move him. Nothing will shake him. He simply is. That's why when Thanos said, I am inevitable, I wanted to slap that character even though it was fake. How dare you? When we think of the time of Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, don't you have a a desire to kind of just clump all those things together like Old Testament Bible people? But if you actually read the scripture and you see the vast amounts of time between Adam and Noah and Abraham, David, you're going to see something kind of cool. They live in very different time periods. Many, many centuries apart from each other. We just kind of read it like this and we're kind of at the center of all this. But we have no capacity to understand the gravity of the change that is occurring from Adam to Noah, from Noah to Abraham, from Abraham to David. What you see in the midst of all of this is generation after generation after generation of humans being born and dying, being born and dying, being born and dying, changing, 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 lands being formed, things shifting, quaking and breaking, kings coming and going. So much. Things being built, things being demolished, powerful kings coming in, world powers coming in and going, all of these things. Technology being introduced. To think. That God was the same God throughout every one of these times of Adam, Noah, Abraham, and David. What we see are vast amounts of time, but God does not change. He can't change. He has not shifted even a little bit. If you think like change is like, like, uh, if you you like wiggle a little bit, that's, no, we won't consider a change. He can't even wiggle. He's so steady and strong in who he is, not even a shifting of an inch. There is no quivering in this God. He is same in the time of Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, Daniel, and we can keep going. During the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, at the time of Jesus and the early church, he didn't change. Through the first 500 years after Christ, he didn't change. The next 500 years after that, and into all times in modern history and until the day that this world ends, And then every second that ticks by after that, into eternity, God will never change. He will be the same forever. His immutability means that this is a sure thing. He was the same before the foundations of the earth, and he will be the same a billion years into eternity. And this matters in our worship. This will shape the way we view our lives about the events that fall upon us, the politics, the climate change, the rumors of wars, Change the way we value comfort. Change the way we seek security and peace in our lives. 
A high view of God in, in regard to his immutability will change the way we feel. It will shatter your depression. It will make, make way for your darkness to disappear. To know that God was and he is and he will always be the same yesterday, today, forever. When you walk with him, that changes you. He is the same God. Psalm 102, 26. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them and they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. You cannot trust a man on this pulpit. That is not why you follow your leaders. but because we trust in God. What worries us today is because of something that will inevitably come to a quick conclusion. What we think will fix our problems will only be short-lived. Everything changes. What makes us happy, what we think makes us happy, will no longer accomplish that tomorrow. What is so important to us here in the world won't be, and ultimately we will just end up dead. For all our dreaming and planning and hoping and as mutable people constantly shifting and changing and moving and dying and decaying. Ridiculous for us to sit here and think that we can put our hopes on these things that will always change. Whether it's things that we think we could purchase and have or some vacation that we want or some boy or girl that we want to marry. God is the only unchanging one and only when you are set upon Him. Will you not shake when the world around you changes and shakes? When people let you down? When you see the state and the reality of your own heart? Because it is this same unchanging God who promises to save us. It means God doesn't grow older. His life force, his energy never changes. He cannot mature. He cannot develop. In all his perfection, he always was and he always will be. A Dutch theologian by the name of Herman Bovink says, the doctrine of God's immutability is of the highest significance for religion. The contrast between being and becoming marks the difference between the creator and the creature. Every creature is continually becoming. It is changeable, constantly striving, seeks rest and satisfaction and finds this rest in God, in him alone, for only he he is pure being and no becoming. Hence, in Scripture, God is often called the rock. God's character doesn't change. For humans, experiences can change us. Extreme pain can change us. Even hunger changes us. We have a word for that. It's called hanger. We fluctuate in moods. It's the very reason why kids might go or not go to their parents, might ask or not ask their parents. Because why? Because their parents' moods keep changing. So this is not the time to ask my mom about this or that. Because we change in our actions, in our attitude, in our behavior. Humans constantly in flux, like, like the waves that keep going in and out, in and out. But God never changes. That's why it's hard to trust. We're going to go seeker-sensitive. We're going we're to go gospel-centered. We're going to go liberation theology. We're going to deconstruct. We're gonna, there's all these different things. 
We're going to go with this theory or that theory, this theology or that theology, and pursue so many things that are constantly shifting. And so we get around the table and we drink our tea and we eat our crumpets and we talk about God as if it were some intellectual exercise, saying, wow, isn't it so fascinating that God is like this? Hey, we should really live for God like this. But when we walk with the immutable God, it just changes you. That's why Moses walks up this mountain and he comes down shining. Because when you walk with him, you can't leave unchanged. And while some of the things we might be presently pursuing are worthy causes, if we are not grounded in God, it only takes, I'll give you five days before God leaves that picture. Our best of intentions if we're not walking with him, if he is not truly our God, and we, and, and God, not the God that we set up like a golden calf, and we call him Yahweh, we're talking about God as he is, as he describes himself to be, as my heart can say, this is who he is. That if we're able to say, I walk with a God, not of my own making, that he's just loving and kind and compassionate, but he is the independent, infinite, immutable God. And not because it's stuck in here, but because I draw my eyes up and I lock eyes on the God of heaven. And so I become what I behold because you can't leave unchanged. Exodus 34.5 says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth, and he could keep counting fifth, sixth, seventh generation because our unchanging God is so faithful that who he is is forever and always. Only in our perceptions, in our space and matter and time do we see him as more merciful or more wrathful, but he always has been like that. And he can't change. You can trust him. You can trust God. He doesn't fluctuate. His promises don't change. Isaiah 46 says, A voice says, call out. Then he answered, what shall I call out? All flesh is grass. All its loveliness, like the flower of the field fades. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. Our words change all the time. We can say, I'll be there, but we can't deliver on that. I tell my kids, Daddy will always be here for you. I will always protect you, and I can't pull through on that promise. Psalm 119.89, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. In verse 151, you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are truth. Of old I have known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. I'm going to read us a long quote here, which is, like I, I, I might have done it the last time I came to. I feel this feels familiar. I'm not supposed to, but it's so good that I want to do it again. Again, it's Tozer. Obviously, you could see when I made this sermon, I was reading Tozer. <clears throat> oh, sorry about that. Um, he says, What peace it brings to the Christian's heart to realize that our Heavenly Father never differs from himself. In coming to him at any time, we need not wonder whether we shall find him in a receptive mood. 
He is always receptive to misery and need as well as to love and faith. He does not keep office hours nor set aside periods when he will see no one. Neither does he change his mind about anything. Today, this moment, he feels toward his creatures, toward babies, toward the sick, the fallen, the sinful, exactly as he did when he sent his only begotten son into the world to die for mankind. God never changes moods or cools off in his affections or loses enthusiasm. His attitude toward sin is now the same as it was when he drove out the sinful man from the eastward garden and his attitude toward the sinner, the same as when he stretched forth his hands and cried, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. God will not compromise and he need not be coaxed. He cannot be persuaded to alter his word nor talked into answering selfish prayer. In all our efforts to find God, to please him, to commune with him, we should remember that all change must be on our part. He's the standard. So having a high view of God means that we don't draw him down to our. We go to him. What that means is you don't individually go to him. We meet where he is. That's what church is. We don't draw him down and talk about him like he's some theological exercise. We don't play some kind of game singing some songs that we like or don't like. Listening to some random pastor up here that I know you guys have had different pastors coming up. It's because we all love God. And we're all seeking him. Every single one of us turning to the other saying we are in desperate need of God. That's what unity is because we go to him. We find ourselves at the only place that doesn't change. I wanted to read the Tozer quote from the beginning. To this I reply that because we are the handiwork of God, it follows that all our problems and their solutions are theological. This is so true. Some knowledge of what kind of God it is that operates the universe is indispensable to a sound philosophy of life and a sane outlook on the world scene. I love the word sane. The word world outlook, far and close, it's insane. It's crazy. I, if I didn't have Christ, I would have, n- I, I think I'd just be maybe watching YouTube all day. <laughs> you know, like what, what, what brings sanity to me? God. Because there's reason to our sanity. Because he is independent. And all things that I see around me is dependent upon him. Sovereign. That he's infinite. That he can hold these promises from beginning to end. And that he's immutable. He will not change. He cannot change. So it's theological, the things that change us. To remember in all fullness of who he is, who it is that we approach in prayer. Who it is that we walk with, who it is says that he cares for us, that he disciplines us, that he loves us, that he challenges us and changes us. We don't need anything else. We have God. So when everything else around us earthquakes, I will not move. I remain unshaken. My outlook hasn't changed. My love for God has not been threatened. My 
my trust, in fact, strengthened. I'll conclude by reading from Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that he might receive the adoption as sons. And the reason why I put this one is because he says when the fullness of time came, he sent forth his son. He sent forth Jesus to be born under this law. And, and the, the whole point of that is, is, is quite remarkable if you actually walk with this God who's independent, immutable, infinite. And the reason why is because Jesus' name was also Emmanuel, which means God with us. So God walked amongst us. Jesus is God, right? Again, theology. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I didn't say anything that you disagree with. Right? You can amen that. But as soon as you actually believe that, how do you stop yourself from dropping down? This, this independent God came down into the world to form, form a man as a baby. Like what's more dependent than a baby? You guys have had children being born. Every time I come, there's like another child. We're mutable. You know, everything's changing. But you, you, I come and we look at this and we see like, wow, like he subjected himself to dependence. What about his infinitude? He subjected himself to time and space. What about his immutability? He subjected himself to this world, to everything around that would change so that he would experience what it is to be like you and me. That he would live the life that we could not live and that he would walk towards that crucifix. But again, it was not the nails that held him there. It was not the Roman centurions that held him there, or Pilate, or the will of the people, it was his very own will that held him to that cross. And on that cross, he looked out at a world and he cried out, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. And the most shocking words, perhaps, in Scripture, if you think about it, is that the independent, immutable, infinite God breathed his last for us. He died so that we wouldn't have to. It breaks your theology. But as much as God is a God worthy of worship in heaven, he came all the way down and took it all. Is he not a God that you can follow? Is he not a God that you can trust? Is this God not the one that's worthy of your worship? Regardless of what goes on around. My prayer for Savior is that eyes wouldn't fall off of God in the name of God. Look to him. Go to God and meet each other there. Revel in the joy. Go back to your first love. Abide in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray, God, 
for your help. Sometimes these things seem so impossible. And Father, I pray, God, that we will come to you in trust. And we will go back to the concepts that we're able to theologically espouse. God, that you will only do what is best for those who love you. There is no other way in which you can operate. You only did what was not better, not not as bad, but the best. You have given us the best. You have situated us in the best. God, it's so hard to see because we're quaking. We're shivering. We're quivering and moving. But we trust in you. Restore to us the joy of salvation. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.